Let us now proceed to consider the eschatology of victory in the third century after Christ. This is a significant time frame because it connects the early patristics who succeeded the apostolic fathers who succeeded and who knew the apostles uh, with the subsequent period after Christianity nominally triumphed throughout what was then the Roman Empire. And so what we have in this time frame that we are about to look at now is the struggles of Christianity during times generally of great persecution to keep its hope and to do its duty in spite of deplorable and otherwise very encouraging outward circumstances. I believe the first figure that um, is of great importance is that of Tertullian of Carthage. As you know, this is the man who invented the theological term Trinity, and so we are very much in his debt for giving us this concept and indeed many others. On the other hand, the man was overly ascetic and uh, he ended up his life uh, in a Montanistic sect. In other words, he went Pentecostalist toward the end of his life, to put it in our modern terminology. And yet, there is much that we can learn from this man and we are constantly told that he was a premillennialist. I think, though, that Tertullian is such a complicated figure, and he went through so many phases that we need to examine that allegation with great caution and check it out as best we can. Now, at times, Tertullian speaks of eternity as following immediately after the resurrection. Uh, in his great work against Marcion, while teaching the resurrection of the just sooner or later, and within the thousand years, he nevertheless says nothing about the resurrection of the unjust unto damnation at the end of the thousand years. And all of this is quite reconcilable with non-premillennial views. As a matter of fact, in Tertullian's Apology, chapter 23, uh, it would seem that he believed that Jesus was coming to judge all people at the same time. Tertullian's frequently quoted work, De Spectis, chapter 30, does not establish, in my opinion, that he was premillennial. Perhaps, however, Tertullian's work on the resurrection of the flesh, chapter 25, taken in conjunction with his Scorpiake, chapter 12, might imply a certain kind of millenarianism, but not necessarily of premillennialism. The issue does not seem to be absolutely clear. These works do not unimpeachably teach that the first resurrection is indeed physical. Moreover, in chapter 24 of this work, Tertullian had just stated that the harvesting of the Christian hope would be concentrated in the very end of the world. Tertullian, flourishing about A.D. 220. 
um, the resurrection, uh, scorpiaki, and the uh, resurrection of the flesh. Tertullian denied that Christ would come again until the pagan Roman state had first fallen away. And this uh, we can see fulfilled uh, at its nominal, or rather after its nominal Christianization around A.D. 320, its falling away and dismemberment into ten kingdoms in about 500 A.D., after the A.D. 476 overthrow of the Western Roman Empire, uh, which Tertullian seems to be anticipating would introduce Antichrist uh, in later church fathers pinpointed at least for a while in the Roman papacy, especially from A.D. 606 onward, which would arise upon the ruins of the dismemberment of the pagan or only nominally Christianized and then re-Romanized Roman Empire. The important thing here is that it does become quite obvious that Tertullian, whatever his millennial strife, was certainly not committed to the idea of the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ. He anticipated that many events would intervene in history before the second coming of Christ. Indeed, there is a strong streak of eschatological optimism in Tertullian as regards the successful course of the gospel in our present world here and now. In his work against Marcion, for example, book 5 and chapter 10, he states, All kings shall fall down before the Lord. To whom shall all thus do homage but unto Christ? In Solomon was no nation blessed. In Christ, every nation. And in Tertullian's work on the veiling of the virgins, book one, he says the reason why the Lord sent the paraclete was that discipline should, little by little, be directed and ordained and carried on to perfection. What, then, is the paraclete's administrative office but this? the direction of discipline, the revelation of the scriptures, the reformation of the intellect, the advancement toward the better things. Tertullian also has many other interesting things to say. Things which, with their great emphasis on the law, with a tool of advance toward a happier world order, may lend some credence at least to the possibility, if not to the probability, that he may more likely have been regarded as a certain kind of post-millennialist rather than a premillennialist. I say he possibly was a premillennialist, but I don't think it's clearly demonstrable one way or the other. Uh, my own inclination is that at least for a while he favored the direction of what we would today call post post-millennialism although only to a mild extent he tells us in his work on idolatry chapters 4 and 5 and 20 that the divine law proclaims thou shalt make no idol if you reverence the same God you have his law if you look back too to the precept enjoining the subsequently made similitude 
do you, too, imitate Moses? For in the first part of the law, too, thou shalt not, saith he, use the name of the Lord thy God in a vain thing, that is, in an idol. And then he goes on to ask us in his work, An Answer to the Jews, chapter 2 and again in chapter 4, why should God, the founder of the universe, the governor of the whole world, the fashioner of humanity, the sower of universal nations, be believed to have given a law through Moses to one people and not be said to have assigned it to all nations. Here he cannot see the logic of a position that would, uh, re would claim that the law was re revealed only to one nation and not at the same time be God's will to all of the nations. For in the beginning of the world, says Tertullian, God gave to Adam himself and Eve a law. For in this law given to Adam, we recognize in embryo all of the precepts which afterwards sprouted forth when given through Moses. That's quite a statement. Uh, he's as much as saying that the uh, covenant between God and Adam before the fall embryonically contains what later became explicated in the Mosaic legislation. And indeed, later Puritans, Fisher and Thomas Boston and others, uh, and even Lightfoot, seem to have thought in much the same direction. He says, In this law, then, given to Adam, we recognize and embryo all of the precepts which afterwards sprouted forth when given through Moses. That is, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God from thy whole heart and out of thy whole soul. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. False witness thou shalt not utter. Honor thy father and mother. And that which is another's shalt, not, shalt thou not covet. For the primordial law was given to Adam and Eve in paradise as the womb of all the precepts of God. In short, before the law of Moses, written in stone tables, I contend that there was a law unwritten, which was habitually understood naturally, and by the fathers was habitually kept. For whence was Noah found righteous? if in his case the righteousness of a natural law had not preceded. Whence was Abraham accounted a friend of God, if not on the ground of equity and righteousness in the observance of a natural law? Whence was Melchizedek named priest of the Most High God, if before the priesthood of the Levitical law there were not so-called Levites who were wont to offer sacrifices to God. Moses said to the people, Remember the day of the Sabbaths to sanctify it. Every servile work ye shall not do therein except what pertaineth unto life. Whence we Christians understand that we 
still more ought to observe a Sabbath. The argument here then is far from the New Testament abolition of the Old Testament law of God, nor does it, in Tertullian's opinion, simply to be a a reconfirmation, but rather the New Testament, if anything, calls for an intensification and an expansion of the Old Testament law. As Isaiah would seem to be prophesying concerning the coming Christ, he shall magnify the law. And then, in Tertullian's great work against Marcion, book 1 and chapter 29, we find him saying, God himself not only said, Be fruitful and multiply, but also, Thou shalt not commit adultery, and thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. And it was he who threatened with death the unchaste, the sacrilegious and monstrous abomination, both of adultery and unnatural sin with man and beast. Very significantly, we find Tertullian teaching in chapter 2 of his work Scorpiake, Let the Gospels wait a little while I set forth their root, the law. I am, says he, God, thy God who have brought thee out of the land of Egypt. Thou shalt have no other gods besides me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any likeness, etc. And so he goes on, sets out the entire Decalogue. It's interesting that the hyper-evangelical Tertullian says, let us wait before we declare the gospel until we have first set forth the law as the roots of the gospel or as it has been more popularly stated since then, let's preach the bad news before we preach the good news. The bad news is we've broken God's law. We need to recognize there is a law. God maintains that law. We've broken it. We are guilty, and having heard that bad news, then and only then are we ready to hear the good news, the gospel, that Christ has kept the law, that he took the rap for our breaking that law, and the further good news that the Holy Spirit, having regenerated us, then proceeds to inscribe the works of the law on the heart of God's elect. Tertullian has some very, very interesting remarks to make in his great work concerning the resurrection of the flesh, referred to very briefly, chapter 24 and 25, earlier. Uh, Here he is dealing uh, with the identity and the sequence of events described in 2 Thessalonians. And Tertullian tells us here, in the second epistle to the Thessalonians, Paul addresses them with even greater earnestness than he did previously. Now I beseech you, says Paul, that ye be not troubled, as if the day of the Lord is at hand, for that day shall not come, unless indeed there first come a falling away, and that man of sin be revealed. That is to say, Antichrist. Tertullian is going to make quite a lot of that statement in his discussion, and Tertullian, it seems to me, is going to repudiate 
the very modern and novel idea of the imminent return of Christ. Instead of that, he's going to teach the certainty of the return of Christ, but only after a number of events had first taken place. Now, what obstacle is there, continues Tertullian, in analyzing 2 Thessalonians 2, what obstacle is there but the Roman state, the falling away of which, by being scattered into ten kingdoms, shall introduce Antichrist upon its ruins. In other words, according to Tertullian, writing from Roman North Africa, round about 220 AD, uh, Antichrist will not emerge until the Roman state has first been dismembered and scattered into ten kingdoms. And furthermore, he says, Antichrist will then emerge on the ruins of the Roman state. Far as I know, uh, here in Tertullian, we have what I've been able to discover thus far as the very first indication in a relatively early church father uh, that the Antichrist would have a Roman character and would appear on the basis of the dismembered Roman Empire. I think that's remarkable when you consider the fact that the Bishop of Rome was not called Pope until some four centuries after Tertullian wrote all of this. Continuing with Tertullian, in the Revelation of John, again, the order of these times is spread to view, which the souls of the martyrs are taught to wait for beneath the altar, whilst they earnestly pray to be avenged and judged, taught, I say, to wait, in order that the world may first drink to the dregs the plagues that await it out of the vials of the angels, and that the city of fornication may receive from the ten kings its deserved doom, and that the beast Antichrist, with his false prophet, may wage war on the church of God, and that, after the casting of the devil into the bottomless pit for a while, the blessed prerogative of the first resurrection may be ordained from the thrones, and then again, after the consignment of him to the fire, that the judgment of the final and universal resurrection may be determined out of the books. Since then, the scriptures both indicate the stages of the last times and concentrate the harvest of the Christian hope in the very end of the world, it moreover follows that the very maintenance of this spiritual resurrection amounts to a presumption in favor of the other bodily resurrection. I believe those words are very important uh, because uh, our millennialists and post-millennialists in trying to understand Revelation 20 uh, are both at pains to make a distinction between the first resurrection, the spiritual, and the second resurrection bodily. Now, in reply, we are told by many of our premillennial brethren that that is an improper distinction. Even the great and otherwise very edifying George Eldon Ladd feels that what is true of the first resurrection must similarly be true of the second. But I think it's interesting to see that Tertullian, who 
I think uh, all premillennialists who have referred to him considered to be a fellow premillennialist does indeed give a non-premillennial interpretation of the character of this first resurrection and the second resurrection in Revelation 20. I'm saying then that at this point Tertullian seems to be either a, an amillennialist or a postmillennialist by distinguishing between what he calls the spiritual resurrection and the subsequent bodily resurrection. And then he motivates this. For if none were announced for that time, there would be fair ground for asserting only this purely spiritual resurrection. Inasmuch, however, as a resurrection is proclaimed for the last time, it is proved to be a bodily one, because there is no spiritual one also then announced. Why make a second announcement of a resurrection of only one character, that is, the spiritual one, since this ought to be undergoing accomplishment either now, without any regard to different times, or else then, at the very conclusion of all the periods. It is therefore more competent for us even to maintain a spiritual resurrection at the commencement of a life of faith, we who acknowledge the full completion thereof at the end of the world. Particularly that last sentence, I think, makes it absolutely apparent that Tertullian, Tertullian gives an extremely non-premillennial interpretation to the character of the first of the two resurrections mentioned in Revelation chapter 20. And then more significantly still, I believe, we have a very interesting citation from his work against Marcion, book 5 and chapter 10. He is discussing portions of Psalm 72, the great messianic psalm discussing the expansion and the earthly character and the prosperous nature of the messianic kingdom of Jesus Christ. And Tertullian says, Will not those portions of the psalm which apply to Christ alone be enough to teach us that all the rest too relates to Christ and not to Solomon? He shall have dominion, says the psalmist, from seas to sea and from the river unto the ends of the earth. To Christ alone was this given, whilst Solomon reigned over only the moderately sized kingdom of Judah. Yea, all kings shall fall down before him. Whom indeed shall they all thus worship except Christ? And in him shall all nations be blessed. In Solomon was no nation blessed, not even, he could have added, the nation of Israel. In Christ every nation is blessed. Blessed also is his glorious name, and with his glory shall all the earth be filled, says Tertullian. On the contrary, Solomon, as I make bold to affirm, lost even the glory which he had from God, seduced by his love of women, even into idolatry. And this, the statement which occurs in about the middle of this psalm, his enemies shall lick the dust, of course, as having been, to use the apostle's phrase, put under his feet. 
this statement, his enemies shall lick the dust, will bear upon the very object which I had in view when I both introduced the psalm and insisted on my opinion of its sense, namely, that I might demonstrate both the glory of his kingdom and the subjection of his enemies in pursuance of the Creator's own plan. Finally, a very interesting section from his work on the unveiling of virgins, book one. His dealing with Christ's sending of the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, into the world. A subject in which uh, Tertullian, especially toward the end of his life, got more and more involved. And he says here, the reason why the Lord sent the paraclete was that since human mediocrity was unable to take in all things at once, discipline should, little by little, be directed and ordained and carried on to perfection by that vicar of the Lord, the Holy Spirit. Notice the, the uh, emphasis on progress little by little. Doesn't that remind you of the Old Testament statement that uh, God will send hornets ahead of his people? into the promised land so as little by little to dislodge the people there to enable the saints to go marching in after the hornets that the whole land not be thoroughly depopulated of animals and plagues break out Tertullian was committed to an organic expansion of the work of the Holy Spirit on earth and not to a dynamic uh, dramatic uh, any minute operation at least not at that stage of his life when he wrote these words. And this becomes even clearer to us in the following sentences. What then is the paraclete's administrative office but this? The direction of discipline, the revelation of the scriptures, the reformation of the intellect, the advancement toward better things. Tertullian is saying here that one of the jobs of the Holy Spirit is to advance people and indeed culture which he otherwise seemed to have despised toward better things ahead. Just look how creation itself advances little by little to fructification. First comes the grain and from the grain arises the shoot and from the shoot struggles out the strength and the whole that we call a tree expands. Then follows the swelling of the German, and from the German bursts the flower, and from the flower the fruit opens. That fruit itself, rude for a while, and unshapely, little by little, keeping the straight course of its development, is trained to the mellowness of its flavor so too righteousness. For the God of righteousness and of creation is the same, was first in a rudimentary state, having a natural fear of God. From that stage it advanced through the laws and the prophets to infancy. From that stage it passed through the gospel to the fervor of youth. Now through the paraclete it is settling into maturity. I'd just like to add at this stage, without going into too much further detail, uh, 
that it's important for us to understand that the law of God was being read from the Christian pulpits Sabbath after Sabbath in Christian church liturgies in the first and the second and the third and right down to the fourth century A.D. This is conceded historically even by liturgists uh, unsympathetic today to the reading of God's law from the pulpit. And we can see further evidence that this is so in the writings of Oregon, both in the Latin and Greek version of his great work concerning origins, as well as in his commentary on Matthew, book 11, in the works of Cyprian, especially Epistle 72, and his 11th treatise, his first through fifth exhortations, his 13th treatise, and in the works of Cyril, such as in his catechetical lecture, and so on and so forth. And so what Calvin and the subsequent Calvinists, and in South Africa to this very day, where the law of God must be read from the pulpit every Lord's Day morning, what they were really doing was not some legalistic innovation of later stodgy Puritanism, but they were reinstituting the universal practice not only of the Old Testament people of God, but indeed of the New Testament church of the first four centuries, even in the opinion of impartial critics who do not like the idea. And with that, we come to a consideration of the place of Oregon, the great Egyptian professor of Alexandria. Now, if Tertullian had waxed... Uh, had waxed bold in the western zone of North Africa in Carthage, some ten years or so later, Oregon waxed equally bold in the eastern zone of North Africa in Alexandria. Uh, I mentioned these places to give you some indication of the enormous geographical spread of these ideas, as well as the dates at which they were uttered, so that we can see we're not dealing here with phenomena on the lunatic fringe of Christianity. We're dealing with widespread phenomena that were indeed central in the mainstream thought of the church at this early time. Now, Oregon, who, like uh, Tertullian, uh, seemed to move away from orthodoxy, uh, the older that he got, was nevertheless, with Tertullian, recognized at least in his early periods, as a very important thinker and is, even in Roman Catholic circles, so regarded to this very day. That is, as far as his early views are concerned. In his great work concerning origins, book one and chapter six and paragraph one, Oregon tells us, the end of the world then and the final consummation will take place when everyone shall be subjected to punishment for his sins. For thus says Holy Scripture, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Christ must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. But if even that unreserved declaration of the Apostle does not sufficiently inform us what is meant by enemies being placed under his feet? Listen to what he says 
in the following words, For all things must be put under him. What then is this putting under by which all things must be made subject to Christ? I am of the opinion that it is this very subjection by which we also wish to be subject to him, by which the apostles also were subject, and all the saints who have been followers of Christ. And then he goes on to tell us in his, the third book of the same work uh, that the highest good, after the attainment of which the whole of rational nature is seeking, which is also called the end of all blessings, is defined by many philosophers as follows. The highest good, they say, is to become as like to God as possible. But this definition I regard not so much as a discovery of theirs as a view derived from Holy Scripture. Here, by the way, you see the incipient pantheism of Oregon already beginning to creep in. This is pointed out by Moses before all other philosophers when he described the first creation of man in these words. And God said, Let us make man in our own image and after our likeness. And then he adds the words, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And he blessed them. Now the expression, In the image of God created he him, without any mention of the word likeness, conveys no other meaning than this, that man received the dignity of God's image at his first creation, but that the perfection of his likeness has been reserved for the consummation, namely, that he might acquire it for himself by the exercise of his own diligence in the imitation of God, the possibility of attaining to perfection being granted him at the beginning through the dignity of the divine image and the perfect realization of the divine likeness being reached in the end by the fulfillment of the necessary works. You know, our premillennialist brethren often regard Oregon as the first postmillennialist that they are willing to concede was a post-millennialist in the history of the Christian church. But as I, as a non-premillennialist, uh, look at this documentation that I have just recited, I myself find a lot less evidence for post-millennialism than we've already discovered in some of the earlier writings. I'm not denying that Oregon was a post-millennialist. I think he was, although I think he fell into increasing error toward the end of his life. I'm saying that to me it's extraordinary that uh, a premillennialist can seem to detect postmillennialism in what I've just read so much more clearly than he can in some of the earlier documents closer to the apostles which we have referred to previously. About the same time in Rome there was a, a martyr called Hippolytus who died for the Christian faith, um, flourished round about the year 240 A.D., and wrote a work on the Antichrist, of which we have fragments today, and from the 61st section, he has the following remarks to say 
about Revelation chapter 12. He says, The words upon her head was a crown of twelve stars refers uh, to the twelve apostles by whom the church was founded. And the words, she, being with child, cries, travailing in birth, and pain to be delivered, means that the church will not cease to bear from her heart the word that is persecuted by the unbelieving in the world. And she brought forth, he says, a man-child who is to rule all the nations, by which is meant that the church, always bringing forth Christ, the perfect man-child of God, who is declared to be God and man, becomes the instructor of all the nations. I must admit that it was quite a revelation for me to discover, not too long ago, that perhaps the majority of orthodox interpreters of Revelation 12 seemed to favor the interpretation that the man-child that was born was not the Lord Jesus as much as the whole church of Jesus Christ uh, which gains the victory over the nations and which rules them. Of course, I can't subscribe to the uh, idea, the Roman Catholic idea, developed later that the church is the uh, incarnate body of Christ and is a continuation of the incarnation. But I think we do need to have eye to the fact that the church is the mystical body of Christ the earthly feet of Christ, as it were, which under his direction in heaven marches forth unto victory throughout the world and therefore seems to become the instructor and the ruler of all nations. And then some ten years later, back in Africa at Carthage, the city of Tertullian, we find the bishop Cyprian. Sometimes, Premillennialists allege that Cyprian was a premillennialist, although I can't see anything in his writings yet suggesting that he was. To some extent, the evidence might seem to favor the contrary. But especially in the, his 55th epistle, he has the following to say. He says, The apostles taught us those things which they themselves also learnt from the Lord's precepts and the heavenly commands the Lord himself strengthening us and saying there is no man that hath left house or land or parents or brethren or sisters or wife or children for the kingdom of God's sake who shall not receive sevenfold more in this present time and in the world to come life everlasting let us imitate the three children, Ananias, Azarias, and Mishael, he means the three friends of Daniel, who neither frightened by their youthful age nor broken down by captivity, Judea having been conquered and Jerusalem taken, overcame the king by the power of faith, Daniel 3. He says, we Christians, living in a time of persecution, he wrote this during a time of most vicious persecution, the whole controversy about the lapsed, those who, Christians who had capitulated to persecution, who had yielded, and after that who came back to the church and sought readmission. He said that we, in a time such as that, 
are to imitate the example of the three friends of Daniel and to overcome the king. And here you can see him uh, implying that Christians living in his age need to overcome Caesar, the Roman emperor, who then had all of the political control and the means to hurt Christians, and they had very little at that stage in the way of political resources. And he says, For this is the strength of courage and of faith, to believe and to know that God can deliver from present death, and yet not to fear death, nor to give way, that the faith might be the more mightily proved. The uncorrupted and unconquered might of the Holy Spirit broke forth by their mouth. That's an interesting statement. He's indicating that as in respect of Daniel's three friends, so too in respect of the persecuted Christians of his own time, that the power, the victory, and the unconquerability of the Holy Spirit is to break forth through their human mouths. So Daniel too, he says, referring back to the Old Testament type of the persecution that they were then undergoing at the hands of the Romans, so Daniel too, when he was required to worship the idol Bel, which the people and the king then worshipped, in asserting the honor of his God, broke forth with full faith and freedom, saying, I worship nothing but the Lord my God who created the heaven and the earth. Let us be armed, beloved brethren, continues Cyprian, with our whole strength, and let us be prepared for the struggle with an uncorrupted mind, with a sound faith, with a devoted courage, and now notice these words. It's encouraging them to go through tribulation unto victory and not to look for instant rapture. He says, Let the camp of God go forth to the battlefield which is appointed to us. Bold words coming from a man who has no military strength, facing the greatest empire that the world had ever known up to that stage of the earth's history. Let the camp of God go forth to the battlefield which is appointed to us. Let the sound ones be armed, lest he that is sound should lose the advantage of having lately stood. Let the lapsed also be armed. He says, have mercy on those who backslid in times of persecution. Restore them, equip them with the arms of God and tell them next time to be more successful in their fight against spiritual wickedness. Let the lapsed also be armed, that even the lapsed may regain what he has lost, taking the shield of faith, wherewith he shall be able to quench, to douse, to put out all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And then, in his twelfth treatise, uh, reflections of which in almost the same words we also find in his first testimony, the twentieth section, and his second testimony, the seventh section, he says, The church, which before had been barren, shall have more children from among the Gentiles than what the synagogue 
had before. Christ our God has come, the Enlightener and the Savior of the human race. He is the light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He saves the human race, the race as a whole. And the implication seems to be he rejects only the incorrigible reprobates. There's a very interesting document with a very unusual name written approximately 275 A.D. document is called the Apostolic Constitutions. A bit of a misnomer uh, for the simple reason that um, it was obviously not written by the Apostles any more than the Apostles' Creed was written by the Apostles. And yet the people who did write this were absolutely convinced that what they were writing in this document uh, was a reflection of the Church as constituted by the Apostles. They believed that they were in doctrinal apostolic succession, as indeed those who wrote the Apostles' Creed initially and later in its uh, amended variation consciously believed that they were reflecting there the faith once and for all delivered and handed down from the apostles themselves. Now in these apostolic constitutions which enjoyed considerable prestige in the church from this time onward we read the following remarkable words in the 8th chapter. We thank thee O Father for that life which thou hast made known to us by Jesus thy Son, by whom thou madest all things, and takest care of the whole world. Do thou, O Lord Almighty, everlasting God, so gather together thy church from the ends of the earth into thy kingdom, as this corn was once scattered and is now become one loaf. These are words that were recited at the communion table, uh, according to this document, the Apostolic Constitution. While they were breaking bread of communion, they were aware of the extension and expansion and consolidation of the kingdom of Jesus Christ in a time of great persecution. Thou, O God, who art powerful, faithful and true, and without deceit in thy promises, who didst send upon earth Jesus thy Christ to live with men as a man when he was God the Word and man to take away error by the roots. Do thou even now through him be mindful of this thy holy church which thou hast purchased with the precious blood of thy Christ and deliver it from all evil and perfect it in thy love and thy truth, and gather us all together into thy kingdom which thou hast prepared. Shortly after this, we find an expanded version of the apostolic constitutions, uh, which are perhaps more accurately named the pseudo-Clementine liturgies. In the apostolic constitutions, uh, book one, and chapter 1, and book 2, and chapter 4. But oh, how rich is the teaching here. Have before thine eyes the fear of God, 
And always remember the Ten Commandments of God. To love the one and only Lord God. Thou shalt observe the Sabbath. Reject every unlawful lust. Honor thy parents. Avoid swearing falsely. And then in the eighth book and the second chapter. Describing the horrible transgressions of God's moral law. From the fall down to Sodom. Even before the time of Moses. We are told further in the third chapter, Thou who didst instruct Esdras, or Ezra thy servant, to read thy laws to the people, Nehemiah 8, do thou now also at our prayers instruct thy servant, that is the preacher, reading the law in the worship services of the Christian church 275 A.D. We close out this period ending in the cessation of persecution of Christianity and the overthrow of anti-Christianity with the nominal conversion of Constantine with a citation from Victorinus, the Austrian bishop of the town of Petar around about the year A.D. 300. He is commenting on the Revelation, the book of Revelation. And he says that the first seal was opened and that John says that he saw a white horse and a crowned horseman having a bow. After the Lord descended into heaven and opened all things, he sent the Holy Spirit whose words the preachers sent forth as arrows reaching to the human heart that they might overcome unbelief. Therefore, the white horse is the word of preaching with the Holy Spirit sent out into the world. For the Lord says, This gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world for a testimony to all nations, and then shall come the end. Thus his comment on Revelation 6. Then on Revelation 20, those years in which Satan is bound, are in the first advent of Christ, even to the end of the age. And they are called a thousand, according to that mode of speaking, wherein a part is signified by the whole, just as is that passage, the word which he commanded for a thousand generations, although they are a thousand. Moreover, he says that Satan is bound and shut up, that he may not seduce the nation. The nations signify the church, seeing it is out of the nations that the church itself is being formed. There are two resurrections, but the first resurrection is now of the souls that are by the faith, which does not permit men to pass over to the second death. Of this resurrection the apostle says, If ye have risen with Christ, Seek those things which are above. The church was winning the battle in spite of vicious persecution. Rome was about to collapse in the formal conversion of Constantine. And Constantine it was who recognized God's religion and law throughout the empire with his motto, In hoc signo vinco.
in this sign, the sign of the cross, I conquer. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.